So as we start our study, here's the question, who is the head of your household? Who is the head of your household? At the end of an age when all believers were standing in line waiting to get into heaven, God appeared and said, I want to have three lines, two lines for men and one for women. One line will be for the men who are true heads of their households. The other will be for the men who were dominated by their wives. And then God said, I want a third line for all the women who are going to see St. Peter. And so the women left and the two men began to form their lines. And the line of men were dominated by their wives, seemingly to be an unending line. It went on for eternity. And the line of men who were true heads of their household only had one solitary single man in that line by himself. God said to the first line, now, you men, I want you to be ashamed of yourself. I appointed you to be the heads of your household, and you were dominated by your wives. You were disobedient. You have not fulfilled my purpose in the leadership role of your family. Of all of you, there's only one man who obeyed me. Now, I want you to learn from his testimony as to why he's standing in this line. God then turned to the single man and asked, how did you come to be in this line? To which he said, my wife told me to stand here. Can I get an amen, guys? That's what I thought. If you, you want to be miserable when you go home, you just, never mind. Let me ask you this as we start this study and we think about that. Why do you do the things you do for God? Why do you do the things you do for God? Why do you do the things you do for others? Why? What's the motivating, driving force behind what you do for God and what you do for others? I think there's some of us who would have to honestly, even if we have to stand in a line all by ourselves like that solitary man, would must admit the reason we do what we do is to please other people. We're called people pleasers, and we want others to be happy with us. We want to please them, and so as a result of that, we do what we do in order to please man or others, or our spouses, or our children. There are some of us who do what we do for God and for others because of our own self-interest. We, we, we like the platform that it gives us. We like the authority that it gives us. We like to be able to lord over others in our service to them. And there are all kinds of self-interest that motivate us for the reasons we do what we do, even in our performance of ministry and as service to someone else. And it's very important that over the course of our lives as we serve others that we continually evaluate the motivating driving force behind why we do what we do for God and why we do what we do for others. For if we are not careful, our humanity will rise up and we can do the right thing for the wrong reason the right 
thing, but the wrong motive. It is possible. And we're going to learn from today from Abraham in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, that Abraham did what he did as unto the Lord Jesus. His sole purpose and his sole motivation was to serve as unto the Lord. That was the only motive, the only reason, the only driving force that he had. Now, there is a complementary passage in Colossians 3, 23. At least we think that this is just an Old Testament passage. And I could quote many other Old Testament passages and New Testament passages other than this one. But for time's sake, Colossians 3, 23 says that whatever you do, Whatever you do, that's all-inclusive, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. I don't know about you, but whatever is all-inclusive, whatever you do, to whomever you are doing it to, you do it as unto the Lord. That passage in in Colossians 3.23, he lists how wives are to relate to their husbands, how husbands are to relate to their wives, how children are to relate to their parents, how parents are to relate to their children, and how employees are to relate even to their bosses. And he says, in wrapping it all up, now some of your translations have the word and, but in the original text in, in, in Colossians 3.23, the word and is not there. So it's not just talking about bond slaves, it's talking about all encompassing everything that he said, whatever you do, whoever you're doing it to, to your wife, to your husband, to your parents, to your children, even to your employer, whatever you do, do it heartily, do it with the best ability that you have, and you do it as unto the Lord. So when you're doing it to someone else, you're doing it as unto the Lord. You're offering your best to them because you're not offering it to them. You're offering it to the Lord. And when you offer something to the Lord, you offer him your very best unto him. That will change your whole life. That will revolutionize how you relate to other people. When you conscientiously think, what I'm doing in relating to them, I am doing this as unto the Lord. When I speak, to them, I'm speaking as unto the Lord. When I'm acting, I'm acting as unto the Lord. What I do, I am doing it as unto the Lord Jesus. So whatever, I, whatever comes out of my mouth, I'm saying it to him. Whatever I do, I'm doing it unto him. And that, that, that'll change your life. Because it'll, it'll strip away the nastiness that sometimes wants to come out of your mouth and the thoughts that you shouldn't think and the actions that you shouldn't do and the sins that you will commit. Because whatever you do, you're doing as unto the Lord in his presence. You are doing it as unto him. And whatever you do, you do it with the best that you possibly can offer. And how did Abraham accomplish that? Seven things I want to look at. Seven characteristics from Abraham's service to the Lord. Number one. Accountability. Accountability. Take a look at the text. Accountability. I mean, accessibility. I'm sorry. Accessibility. In other words, he was exactly where he needed to be, and he was accessible to the Lord. Verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He was in the right place. Where was he? He was in 
the promised land. He was in Canaan. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. You remember there were times we studied in Abram's life, Abraham, before he was Abraham, he was Abram, when he wasn't exactly where he was supposed to be. But now he is exactly where God has commanded him to be. He is in Canaan. He's in a forest. He has set up his camp, his residence there in a very, uh, you know, not an open space, but a place where there's a lot of trees so that there's a lot of shade. And he's exactly where he's supposed to be. He's in the right place. But notice not he's in the right place, but notice the right posture. Where is he? He's at the front door, seated for the cool of the day. I don't know if you know anything about tents back then, but they had flaps on them. They would close them at night to keep in the heat, and they would raise them during the day to let the breeze through. And he has the flaps up in his tent, and he's seated at the front of the house waiting for the Lord. He's waiting. He's accessible. The Lord's going to come to him and going to allow him and to ask him to serve. He's accessible. But notice in verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and beheld three men were standing in front of him when he saw them. Notice he had the right perception. What was his perception? He lifted his eyes, he looked at a distance, and he beheld something unusual. Three men coming to him, and as he saw them, I'm convinced he saw one who stood out among the three. I'm convinced that before he, he realized that he saw the Lord, he understood who he saw. He understood that he saw the Lord himself. And many believe that the one he saw was not God, but Jesus. He saw Christ. His understanding and his mind was open. And when he looked, he saw Jesus among the three who were traveling toward him. He saw him. You know, if you're going to serve the Lord, you've got to perceive and recognize the presence of the Lord. And I'm convinced that the most, of the, most of the times we're not, we're not cognizant of the reality of the presence of God because we're walking around with our eyes closed or our hands over our face, our heads down, and we're just not looking, we're not perceiving. If you know anything about that, that great study called Experiencing God, you've got to know where God's at work before you can join God in what he is doing. And many of times we don't see God and where he is at work because we are not perceptive enough and attentive enough to know and to recognize when we are in the presence of Jesus. He was aware that he was in the presence of Jesus. But notice his response he ran from the tent door to meet him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet him. He was making himself accessible to Jesus. Here I am. Use me. I think one of the main reasons why many, many times we're not being used by God the way he wants to use us is that we're flat out sometimes not accessible. We're not in the right place. We don't have the right perspective. We're not in the right posture, in the right frame of reference or frame of mind. We're not paying attention. We're not attentive. And because of that, we are just simply not accessible to God. If you make yourself accessible to God, he will use you. And unless you're accessible to him, he will not use you. Not that he cannot, but he will not use you. Accessibility is the first characteristic of those who God uses. Number two, accessibility turns then to humility. Notice the text. And as he runs up to Jesus 
and the two, he bowed himself to the earth. His instantaneous response and reaction to, in the, to being in the presence of Jesus himself was to do what? Was to throw himself on the ground and put his face in the dirt or the dust that was there. He didn't clear a spot again like he did before. You know, he, he's done this before. He didn't clear. He just, boom, he goes down. It's an instantaneous on-the-spot reaction to being in the presence of Jesus. He humbles himself. He lowers himself, and he elevates Christ. And it's an act of worship that he's rendering under his Savior. And he's saying, and he bound himself to the earth, verse 3, and then he speaks. Notice how he recognizes who he is. O Lord, he addresses Jesus as his Lord, as Yahweh, as Jehovah, as his Master, Oh, Lord, I am humble, and you are elevated. You are Lord, and I am your servant. Oh, Lord, notice it said, if I have found favor in your sight. If I have found favor. If is a huge word. He's not quite sure why Jesus is there. But he admits, if you have evaluated my life, and if I have found favor, allow me to serve. I want to say this, service is not a right, it is a privilege. I want you to chew on that spiritually for a little bit. Service is not a right, it's a privilege. Not everybody gets the privilege to serve. And it's not a right to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a privilege. And Abraham recognizes this privilege. He doesn't claim it as a right it's a privilege. If I have found favor, let me be honored by serving you. It is an honor to serve him. It is a humbling thing in which we bow in the presence of God and we serve him, we elevate him, and we deflate ourselves. It's not about our performance or, or any applause that we may get, but it's rendered unto him because he is Lord and it's a privilege and opportunity that we have to serve him. If I have found favor, notice he says, in your sight. He acknowledges that Jesus is not only all-powerful, not only is he all-present, but he is also all-knowing. If I have found favor in your sight, meaning <laughs> you're all-knowing, you know my heart, you know my mind, you see my life, you're the judge, you're the the equalizer, you're the evaluator, you're the one who is the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And if, if by chance I have lived my life in such a way that you would honor me to serve you because you have, you have analyzed and evaluated my life and you have seen that in your sight I, am, I have found honor to serve you. Notice that he says, do not pass your servant by. He pleaded, please, please, Please allow me this opportunity to serve you. I want to serve you. And I humble myself and elevate you if you'll give me the opportunity to serve. Humility. Thirdly, we see availability. The first was accessibility. The second is humility. The third is availability. Notice here we see in the text, verse 4. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Don't skip that first three-letter word in the beginning of the sentence. 
L-E-T. Let. What Abraham is asking is, Abraham is asking for permission to serve. Will you let me serve you? Will you let me? It's an honor to serve you, and if you'll let me, I will serve you, and I will serve you in this way. I will bring drinking water to you. I know you've been on a journey. You've been traveling. You're probably thirsty. I will bring water, and I will wash your feet. I will bring bread to serve you, and if you're hungry, I will give you the shade because God gave him the land to sit underneath and to rest yourself in the shade. And not only that, but, but I will let you just refresh yourself as long as you want to, Lord. Let me serve you. Here's what I have. I bring it all to you. I lay it at your altar. I am completely and totally available, 100% to whatever you need and whatever you want. No holds barred, no off limits, no boundaries. I'm totally and completely available. Whatever I have is yours. But notice what he says next. I I find this fascinating. He says, and after that, you may pass on. And after that, You may pass on. Now, you might not think a lot about that, but here's what I thought about that. He says, after that, you may pass on. What is he he saying? When when I get through serving you, then you can leave. And I thought about that. What does Abraham want from God? Zero. Nothing. Nada. He wants nothing from God except for the privilege and the opportunity to serve. He wants not, he's not asking anything in return. How much of what we hear today on television and radio and many of the churches today, if you serve, this is what you get. And many serve in order to receive. And all Abraham wants to do is to give and to serve with nothing in exchange. You know, a gift isn't a gift if I give it to you and then expect you to respond or reciprocate after that gift, is it? I mean, if I give you something and I expect a thank you, I'm getting something. I'm getting an acknowledgement from you. He's not even asking God for an acknowledgement. After I have served and when you're done, you can go, I don't want anything from you, God. It's just an honor and a privilege to serve you. Wouldn't it be great to have a church filled with people like that? And then he says, since you have come to your servant. I find that fascinating. He recognizes that it is Jesus who's approached him. He hasn't approached Jesus. You see, I think there's a danger sometimes when people say, Lord, I want to serve you in this capacity, in this capacity, in this capacity. I want to do this and this and this and this. I'm ready. I'm available. Here's my talent. Here's my, here's my objectives. Here's my goals. Here's my future. Here's... No, he's simply coming and saying, I recognize that you're the one that's approached me. I don't deserve this opportunity. And and I know that you're the one that's initiating that. And, And I believe that the best service that's rendered unto him is a service that is initiated by him, not from us. Because sometimes we come to God with a list of things that we want to do for him, and we miss the opportunity of what he wants us to do for him rather than us doing it for him. Because our lists often, mostly, are not the same as his. And he says... Since you have come to your servant. But notice, lastly, then what happens in that verse, verse 5. So they, Jesus and the two angels, say, do as you have said. They commanded him. This is a command. Just do it. Sounds like a 
Nike commercial, doesn't it? Let's do it. He gets the green light. He's offering everything into the service and in honor and recognition of, of Jesus. And he says, here I have, I'll have. And he said, there's the green light. Have you ever sat at a green light longer than you should? Or maybe the person in front of you is sitting doing this. What are they doing when they're doing this? Yeah. They're doing that while they're driving. And what do you do when they don't go as soon as the light turns green? That's dangerous. People have been shot for that. Seriously, be careful. He gets the green light. And when he gets the green light, notice the urgency, which brings us to number four. Notice the urgency of Abraham and the significance in this opportunity. He understands the importance in verse six. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. Interesting. He went how? Quickly. He got the green light. He didn't waste any time. He didn't put it on the back burner. He didn't delay at all. He immediately took actions and took steps to doing what God had said he could do. Jesus gave him the green light, and he quickly went about his father's business. I wonder how quickly we go about our father's business. Hours turn into days. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years. And we're going to get to it one of these days. We're going to get to it. We fail to see the urgency of the opportunity of the green light that God has given us to go. And Abraham went quickly, notice, into the tent to find who? To find Sarah. Was it because he wasn't a good cook? Bob quit sending me text, okay? There's a Tuesday night men's group that meets. And he always sends me these texts of these nasty things they eat for dessert. They're really nasty looking. No, they're not really. They're good looking. But, you know, there's some men that can cook. Any man in here? Can you cook? Some men in here? Is it by necessity or because you like it? No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't admit that. It wasn't because Abram couldn't, or Abraham couldn't cook, but he finds Sarah, and I think he wants to include Sarah in the service. There's an inclusivity here when we serve. When God gives us the opportunity to serve, the best servants are one that includes others. They don't hog it up all themselves. They, they quickly share. They're inclusive, not exclusive. Because sometimes in the exclusivity, we have a tendency to, to build up the ego and the, I'm more important than anyone else in the room, so no one else can do it like I do it. And so he includes Sarah, but he says to her, do it quickly. Don't delay. Do it quickly, Sarah. Time is of the essence. Jesus is waiting. He's given us the green light. Do it quickly. And I think he asked her to make some pancakes. They're a little bit different than the pancakes you know I eat, but on Saturday mornings, every Saturday morning when our kids were growing up, I got to make pancakes. That was my job. Patty got to sleep one day a week. That was Saturday. And it was my responsibility to do breakfast. Now, the pancakes that I make are easy. You just put a couple of eggs in there and some milk, and you stir it up and put it on the pan, and it's good to go. Anybody know what I use? Bisquick. They didn't have Bisquick back then. A little bit more involved than Bisquick. 
But it was a round cake that was being made, and he wanted Sarah to make it, and it was it took a long time to make it, but she could do it quickly, and she put it on a hot pan, and she put it in. It was similar to that. It would rise a little bit, so it's kind of similar to a pancake. And he says, do it quickly because we have an urgent matter. Jesus is in the room. He's in the house. He's just outside, and we must quickly do this. And she made the pancakes. Now, notice the urgency leads to then now the generosity because we see accessibility, humility, availability, urgency. Now we see number five, generosity. How generous was this meal that he prepared. Well, if you notice three says, says of fine flour, we see that that's a lot of pancakes. <laughs> it's a lot. They didn't just make enough to get by. They cook like my mother used to cook. After she got through cooking, there were three days of leftovers. You know what I'm talking about? And I learned as a kid that leftovers sometimes are better than the firstovers. Right? And that, that she, they made more than enough. There was a generosity here that exceeded the demand or the need that was there of the three and the possibility of what they could eat. But notice in verse 7, and Abraham ran, notice again his urgency, he ran to the herd, to the flock that was there, and he took a calf, a small calf, a young calf. This was a huge sacrifice because they didn't usually slaughter a calf until it got to a certain age because there was always more meat when they got older, when they got more mature, when they were adult. There was more meat to share. So when you slaughter a calf, there's less meat. But when you slaughter a calf, guess what? The meat is better than it is with the old calf. Because it says, and he took a calf tender and good. That tender means the most delicate piece of the calf. And it was good. It was the most desirable meat to eat. And he gave it to a young man, which was a servant, who prepared it quickly. My mother turned 80 this weekend on October 1st, and we, we went to a restaurant Thursday afternoon in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in Brazil, in South America, and I went there when I was eight and came back when I was 19. We were there a long time. And back in the day, a long time ago, when we were in Brazil, they had restaurants that we would go to on occasion, which they had these long sticks, these metal sticks, and they would carve meat, and they would just come by and serve you until you were like, you know. Now, what they have, <laughs> you got to be careful if you ever go to one of these. I went to a place called Boina Braza. Anybody ever been there other than me? Boina Braza, if you ever get a chance. There's one in, in uh, Kansas City, I think, but it's a different name. And it's a Brazilian restaurant. And they will come with these, and they'll cut the meat off for you. Now, you've got to be careful because what they will do is they will, they will offer this, this, this display of food that you can, you know, the, the pre-stuff, the salads and all that stuff. And some of that's good. But you've got to wait for the meat because it'll come. And they have little things that you turn over. Green means go, and red means I've had enough. So you turn it over, and they come. Now, what do they serve you first? If it's all-you-can-eat meat, what do they serve you first? Chicken. Why? It's the cheapest. Then they serve you pork, which is a little more expensive, but it's still cheaper. Then they serve you the other pieces of the cow that are tasty and they're good, but they're not quite that good. And the last meat that they will bring you is called filet mignon. Filet mignon. And I grew up eating that when I was a kid in Brazil. Filet mignon. 
And so that's the last piece. Of, why do they serve that to you? Because they want you to be full when you get to the most expensive, the finest, the best meat to eat. And my mother, who knows this, <laughs> had several pieces of the other at 80 years old, said, no, filet mignon. She's speaking Portuguese to this guy. And they keep bringing her chicken and pork and, and other, no, 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 filet mignon. Finally, they brought her filet mignon. And she got a big old piece, and she ate the whole thing. And I got to ride on that, and I got, that was the most tender, most well-prepared piece of steak I have ever had in my life tender and juicy. I say that to make you hungry for lunch in about 20 minutes. But Abraham didn't serve chicken, pork, lousy pieces of meat until he got to, he got to the filet mignon right up front and gave his best to Jesus. Why? Because he's generous. Some of you are so tight that you squeak when you walk. I can hear you in the halls. And your family knows who you are. And you can be as stingy as all get out. And you can squeeze 11 cents out of a dime. Some of you can squeeze 20 cents out of a dime. But when it comes to Jesus, it's about generosity. It's about giving him your all and your best. Why? He gave his all and his best for you. His one and only son. Why do we have a tendency to be stingy when we serve, when we do for God, and when we do for others? Where is the spirit of generosity? Because we who have received so much have so much to give. And you can never outgive him. Remember, you don't give to get. If you give to get, don't give. If you give to be recognized, keep it. God doesn't need it. We give out of generosity from an overflowing heart that is so grateful to God for the privilege that he gives us to give, to serve, and to do, and to work, that we offer him our very best. Nothing that our best is not acceptable. Not because he demands it, because we as his servants demand it. I don't get up here half-cocked and half-prepared on Sunday mornings. None of us should. We offer and we give God, uh, this is not for you, it's for him. I don't care what you think. Because unless I get an attaboy from him, it doesn't really matter. And I'm not really looking for that either. And neither are you. And we should give God our very best. And be generous in whatever we do. And last, next to last, there's authenticity. Verse 8, first part. Then he took the curds and the milk. I like to think that's bluebell ice cream here. That's where bluebell was, I, curds and milk. And the calf. And he prepared it, and he set it before them, and he stood by them. Don't overlook that. He, Abraham, he, Abraham, he took it. He was the master of the house. He's a multi-gazillionaire. 
He's got servants at his beck and call, and he was the master of ceremonies, and he had the right to sit at the table with Jesus and to be served. If anybody did, it was his home, his calf, his food. He had servants, he got, but not Abraham. He is authentic. He wants to serve. He took it to Jesus. Not only did he take it, but he set it before him. He served. He waited on Jesus. And not only that, he stood by while Jesus ate. He didn't even sit at the table. He stood by. He's an authentic, an authentic servant who wants nothing but to serve. I think sometimes, sometimes our service is anything but authentic. And lastly, notice the re- reliability. Reliability. And he, Abraham, stood by them under the tree while they ate. While they ate. He stood close by. He stood by, waiting at any possible second or any possible reason Jesus might need anything. He would be there to get what Jesus needed. He was at Christ's beckon call for anything, anytime he could do for Jesus. He was reliable. He was standing at his post. He was standing at attention, awaiting Jesus to command him whatever he needed, whatever he wanted, whatever he needed to go get. He was willing to do it. There was no holes barred. There was no limitations. He said, I am at your beck and call, and I wonder if you are. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, that's a, that's a pretty broad term in it, whatever you do. You leave today. I don't know where you're going to go have lunch, but whatever you do, whatever you do, do it with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength, with all your soul, as unto the Lord. And if you're going to go out to have lunch, there'll be a waiter who will wait on you. And the reality is, he has the greater job than you. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And if we want to be like Christ, if we want to be like Abraham, we must serve. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men. Knowing that the form... Not from the Lord. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Let's pray.